This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to a new podcast from the makers of Doomsday Watch. I'm Gavin Esler, and for the past few decades, I've covered the big stories that have shaped our world. Now, as major conflicts, disinformation, corruption, tech shifts, and the climate crisis disrupt our lives, I'm here with a weekly podcast unpicking the complex forces that threaten to cause chaos. For Doomsday Watch regulars, there will be expert analysis and context as before, only weekly and with a new name. This is not a drill. For our first episode, we are in America, where Donald Trump seeks re-election. With Trump leading in the polls, we need to ask a simple question. Do Americans have 12 months to save their democracy? This is not a drill. The worst thing about the current moment is that Trump is succeeding, in my view, in the Republican Party because of the demagoguery, because of the prejudice, because of the incitement almost to violence, because of his contempt for the rule of law, and not despite it. Very importantly, perhaps more importantly, we're leading Biden by a lot. And we're leading Kamala by a lot. And every time the polls go up higher and higher, the prosecutors get crazier and crazier. We gotta stop these guys! This idea that liberals were socialists, were communists, needed to be rooted out. I think he's of a kind that we've seen before, but at a degree that we've never seen before. And he's achieved a degree of power that we've never seen before. Thank you. Either they win or we win. And I promise you this, if you put me back in the White House, their reign is over. And they know it. And America will be a free nation once again. We're not a free nation right now. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Welcome to This Is Not A Drill. We have one year to save American democracy. That's not a scare story. It's a Donald Trump possibility. 
If he wins the presidency again in November 2024, it will be Trump unbound, even less constrained by the basic rules and norms of American political life than before. And since Donald Trump did not accept the democratic verdict of the American people in 2020, does he even believe in democracy? Is Trumpism, as President Joe Biden says, semi-fascism? MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. To answer these questions, I'll be joined by Bill Kristol, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and former chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle. We'll discuss the threat to America's future and how, after decades at the heart of republicanism, Kristol himself has abandoned the party, at least for now, appalled by Donald Trump's behaviour and Make America Great Again rhetoric. But first, to get a sense of why Trump's appeal taps into a peculiar part of the American tradition, I spoke with the author and historian Sarah Churchwell. She has chronicled the centuries-old battle for America's cultural and political identity. I began by asking Sarah about a strange moment in Trump family history. At the opening of one of your books, you talk about an Italian fascist demonstration in New York City in the 1920s, and someone very interesting was arrested at the end of it, or was documented (laughs) as being there. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this was in 1927 on Long Island in Queens. What happened was, you, you said it was an Italian fascist demonstration, which it partly was. What it actually was, was a Memorial Day parade. And in the 20s in New York, the Ku Klux Klan had been gathering political power actually across the country. People think today of the Klan as a group that was uh, primarily had power in the South. But in the 1920s, it spread all across the U.S. And there was a strong Klan presence in New York State, particularly on Long Island. So the Klan had controversially, because they were at that point a kind of semi-official political entity, achieved a permit to march in the parade. And so there was outrage, exactly as would play out today. At the same time, there were groups of people who supported Italian fascism. They were pro-Mussolini. They were often Italian-American immigrants. And they specific, because of course, Mussolini had taken power in 1922. So he's already in power at this point. And basically a riot broke out um, around this Memorial Day parade because of this tension. So violence erupted, and at the end of it, five people were arrested, and one of them was a man named Fred C. Trump, who was Donald Trump's father. He was held as part of the violence. He was present. It is theoretically possible that he could have just been an innocent bystander who got caught up accidentally, that he was just watching a Memorial Day parade. It is possible. But given later events, it looks less and less likely. People say that he was a card-carrying member of the Klan. That is absolutely not established. And since we're on the side of facts, we're going to stipulate that that is not established. But it it circumstantially doesn't look good. Let's put it that way. (laughs) What a coincidence. Um, Yeah, exactly. But this is the paradox, for me anyway. Given his background, how is it he appeals to conservative Republicans who had a view that I could understand whether you agreed with it or disagreed with it, they were decent people. Um, I knew quite a few staunch Republicans. I, I met John McCain on many times, uh, John Kyle, a senator from Arizona. He is not like that. So why has Donald Trump got this hold on the Republican Party, which is presumably still full of people of the kind that McCain and Kyle and others are? This goes back really to the Clinton years and to Gingrich's speakership 
which every liberal columnist jumped up and said promptly, Reagan bad, you know, communism reasonable, why don't you be more practical? It was really under Gingrich that this demonizing of the left began. It was a kind of holdover from McCarthyism um, and a legacy of the Cold War. So this idea that liberals were socialists, were communists, which started to, to fuse with this kind of Christian right worldview that liberals are Satanists. And again, it's easy to find, if you look for it, you will see all over right-wing media in America. And the current Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is a man who has espoused that view. He's on video saying he believes that the fight in America is a fight between freedom and socialism and that socialism is on the side of Satanism. Welcome to our inaugural episode of Truth Be Told. I'm Mike Johnson. Remember this, socialism and communism begin with the idea. The reason it's the opposite of our founding principles, it begins with the idea that there, there is, is no, no God. God. Right? That's right. And, and we can never lose sight of that. Oh, goodness. This is what enables things like QAnon, which of course is a worldview that has all of that stuff baked into it. And it enabled things like Pizzagate, the charge that literally the Democrats were running a satanic pedophile sex trafficking ring out of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C., and that Hillary Clinton was at the head of it. So this idea that the, that your political opponents are literally monsters, it's all baked into this very broadly kind of what I would describe as kind of conspiratorial thinking, but it's deeply partisan. He knows what's up. It's evil. What do you think? We're like those communists. We got without the evil. No, my president walked out there and held the Holy Bible in front of that American church. Are you kidding me? We will not cow without the evil. We're Americans. So what's happened is that over those two generations, we're now in a position where people simply vote Republican no matter what. They don't like Trump. They wish somebody else was in there, but nothing on God's earth, and I use that phrase advisedly, will make them vote for a Democrat. They simply will not do it. They have to tell themselves that Biden is worse, and that's what they do. They say, well, Biden is worse. The Democrats would be worse. Hillary Clinton would definitely have been worse. So I've done the right thing by putting this obviously crazy, adult, mobster, 91 felony counts pending against him, and they will still vote for him over a Democrat. Biden is terrible. It's, it's horrible. The whole Democratic Party are horrible. They're horrible and they're corrupt. The swamp needs to be drained. We're losing our country. Southern border's wide open. People are just coming in from everywhere. We got Americans, veterans living on the street. No food, high gas, gas prices. All this uh, green energy bull crap. Not buying it. God gave us enough oil underneath here. Oh, yes, yes, he was a good president. You know why? Because he loved this country. He should be in office now because uh, he's the greatest president we've ever had. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A year before the November 2024 presidential and congressional elections, American politics and its democracy are clearly going through extraordinary turbulence. It stretches from repeated and bitter rows in Congress in Washington over the Speaker of the House of Representatives to state and local governments where Trump candidates wear a Republican badge, even as Trump himself attacks the accepted norms of decent behaviour in a democracy. He continues to claim he really won the presidency a second time in November 2020. Victory was, he says, stolen. He then helped inspire the violent Capitol Hill riot of January 2021. And that was not a drill. It was a warning. Five people died and 138 police officers were injured. And one question lies at the heart of America's political and constitutional puzzle. How is it that Donald J. Trump, facing, at the last count, 91 felony charges, remains for so many Americans the Teflon candidate? Why does nothing stick? Why are no competent Republicans beating Trump in the race for their party's nomination? And above all, why do so many Christians, women, business people and conservatives back a man not known to be religious with a long record of misogyny and boasting of his business acumen when his wealth was overestimated and his businesses are less successful than he claims? Bill Kristol has a family history at the heart of America's conservative movement. He's the son of Irving Kristol, famously described as the father of neoconservatism for his great influence on Ronald Reagan. But Bill Kristol will not be voting for Trump's Republicans. His never-Trump group, Defending Democracy Together, was launched as a reaction to Trump's first term as president. It includes Republicans for the Rule of Law, an extraordinary name for those in a party traditionally conservative and tough on law and order. I asked Bill what a second Trump term might mean. Bill, can we begin with talking about you and this change in you and in other people too? Um, but what was it that brought it about? Because you were quite early in noticing that Trump was perhaps not the person who should be leading your party. Yeah, and I think it was pretty simple. I mean, people at the time said, oh, you don't like his style, you don't like his tweets, you disagree with him on protectionism or isolationism or particular issues. But it really was more than that. I do think those of us who were never Trump from the beginning saw how dangerous Trump was, that unleashing this kind of demagoguery, these kinds of appeals uh, to people's uh, anxieties and resentments and, and really prejudices, and then magnifying those, having a presidential candidate magnify them, that that really would unleash things in the American political system that were would be hard to sort of put back. And I think, unfortunately, sadly, we were right about that. We're, we're in a very different country, very different Republican Party, and a somewhat different political situation eight years ago. Not that everything was great eight years ago, and not that there weren't a lot of problems with the Reagan Republicans, or for that matter, the Obama Democrats, and, and the system had all kinds of flaws and things that needed to be corrected. But the degree to which Trump has made everything so much worse, you know, we've had demagogues in the past, uh, Joe McCarthy, George Wallace, but if they run for president or they're senators, that's one thing, you know, and they, they don't quite get the nomination. We really haven't had a president who was demagogued his way to the presidency and then as president increased the demagoguery and then at the end of his presidency tried to nullify obviously the 2020 election and it's just 
managed, unfortunately, to take the party with him, keep the party with him, even after that. And so now we have a whole Republican Party that's basically Trumpist. I mean, there are elements that resist it a little bit or, or try not to go along. And one of our having one of our two major parties be so uh, inhospitable to some of the basic norms and institutions and practices of a healthy liberal democracy, that's not good. Bill, in terms of Republicans for the rule of law, what are the threats? What are the kind of things that you would see domestically that, in effect, an authoritarian Trump government might do in the United States? Yeah, Trump said what some of the things he wants to do in the second term. And what's interesting is some of them are just, you know, demagogic proposals for, uh, that you would obviously appeal to voters out there. But some of them are a little bit obscure to voters, but do show that some of the people around Trump, if not Trump himself, have thought a lot about how to destroy the civil service, the, the nonpartisan civil service that we built up over you know, 140 years, I suppose, at this point. Uh, have many, many more political appointees and the ability to fire uh, these nonpartisan attorneys at the Justice Department, uh, get into the military and its appointments. It's interesting that one of Trump's big supporters in the Senate is holding up military promotions. I think that will ultimately get overridden in the Senate in the next, should have been a long time ago, but hopefully in the next few weeks or months. But again, the notion that Trump spends a lot of time attacking uh, the generals who didn't do what he wanted. And it's and it, he's got people around him who have thought a lot more about how to, you know, find the right people in the military and promote them, how to, there are groups of law enforcement officers called constitutional sheriffs is one group who have sort of indicated their openness to going along with the kind of Trump's leadership, you might say, and, and demagoguery as opposed to the actual laws that exist in their state or or in the country. So I think the degree to which one way to think about it would be, think of those last two months, uh, the tr- post-election in 2020, beginning of 2021, what Trump tried to do with the Justice Department and the Defense Department, two pretty important departments uh, of the government, and he was thwarted in many ways. Bill Barr, who had gone along with a heck of a lot as attorney general, quit. Uh, and his successors refused to go along with Trump's attempt to really weaponize the Justice Department for stealing the election. Uh, Ten former secretaries of defense sent a letter. Uh, general Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, made clear that the military could not be used to, uh, in any plots to overturn the election. Uh, he regretted the fact that he had gone with Trump there in the summer of 2020 across Lafayette Square, and et cetera. So, uh, we had those kind of barriers sort of still in place. But people around Trump have thought about those barriers, and there's not going to be a bill bar uh, in 2025, and there's not going to be, I would guess, certainly not going to be a, a Mark Esper, Secretary of Defense, certainly not a Jim Mattis, and not a Mark Milley as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, possibly. So presidents have a lot of power in the U.S., uh, and they have a lot of power, especially if they have a party that's either cheerfully going along or intimidated not to oppose. So I think there are real threats to what we have taken for granted so much here, which is a basic for all of our problems, and with the exception of race, probably, uh, I want to say, um, you know, a kind of rule of law, respect for the institutions, respect for certain uh, practices and norms. And, and that I think that is why a second term of Trump is, is really a, a unique challenge. Do you think that actually you've got a year to save American democracy because you've got a, somebody who could be president who didn't even accept the basic thing, which is if you lose, you concede. And you usually concede gracefully. It's not in the Constitution, but it's just the way people do it. Yeah, the peaceful transfer of power and the concessions of, to, to the next, to the person who wins the election is a pretty important part of democracy. And, and not having one of the two candidates, and more importantly, not having one of the two parties 
behind those candidates on board with that is dangerous. He had constraints in his first term, the kind of old-fashioned Republicans who served, who didn't let him do certain things or steer him away from certain things. He wasn't as competent at uh, going ahead with some of his plans as he will be in a second term. And he didn't, and the part, it wasn't clear that the whole party was behind him until pretty late in his first term. Whereas now, if he wins the nomination, I mean, here's the way to think about it psychologically. If he wins the nomination after everything has happened and the party falls in line, it looks now, you know, they had that moment in the debate, would you still support Trump? And people like Pence and Haley, who were denouncing January 6th, uh, Pence, kind of important figure in January 6th. Yep, I still support him. I mean, if he's the nominee and then the victor, he will be stronger than he was, honestly, in, in 2017. Uh, and his administration would have any internal, would have much in the way of internal roadblocks or, or barriers. Now, we still have a pretty, you know, robust constitutional system here. We have, it's a big country, a lot of checks and balances. We have federalism, which is good. It's, it's not going to be that easy for Trump to just snap his fingers and suddenly start, you know, suppressing free speech or, or telling universities what to teach or commandeering private businesses. It's not, you know, it's not Hungary, right? I mean, I think that's very important to, to, to be serious about. And if, incidentally, it's very important for if Trump wins that Americans be serious about how to bolster these different barriers and, and guardrails, both in the in terms of the courts and in terms of perhaps a, if the Democrats control, or even if they're close to controlling one of the branches of Congress, but also in terms of business and civil society and, you know, state and city, state governments and city governments and so forth. So luckily we have a system that makes it pretty hard uh, to have the success that let's say Orban has had, but Trump will try to go in that direction and it will be a very difficult four years, even if it's not the end of American democracy. Yeah, so I think I think a Trump second term would be more dangerous than a Trump first term. Bill, do you fear further political violence, perhaps like that we saw in 2021? Trump's kind of authoritarianism tends to, as we've seen, go through the electoral system and try to use the institutions of government to advance its, its aims. But uh, Trump's authoritarianism is, if not violent in itself, though it has been occasionally, certainly violence adjacent. And as with other authoritarian movements, you know, there's been a kind of uh, tolerance of violence, whipping up of violence, incitement to violence. And I worry about that a lot. I mean, I, whether Trump wins or loses, incidentally, Trump could lose in November 2024. Do we think all of his supporters just go along with the Biden second term and this spring of 2025? Do we think that there aren't elected officials who will stir up opposition to lawfully passed measures and duly elected officials? So I think the degree to which we've unleashed a kind of systematic violence that's tolerated by or winked at or even encouraged by a president or at least an ex-president and, and other figures in the in a major political party. Yeah, I'm much more worried that we will have violence and intimidation, incidentally, of election officers. Let's just take that for a second. We have a very decentralized election system here. States run their own elections and localities run them and a lot of volunteers. The amount of the talk on the right of, we're going to get our people to man the polls. There's theft everywhere. We've got to watch every vote and we've got to make sure that, and it sounds slightly harmless. Of course, they're entitled to watch you know, the voting to some degree. They're partisan observers usually at elections. But the intimidation of, of nonpartisan election administrators, uh, the attempt to, to uh, mingle into the nonpartisan election administrators or replace them, the, the threat of possible violence in, in the weeks before the election and then on election day itself, those are real concerns as well. One form of our country will not decide.
Bill Crystal's description of Trump's so-called war on the deep state involves an ideological witch hunt in US government departments, most notably justice and defence. It comes, of course, at a time of war in Europe, conflict in the Middle East, fears about Chinese expansionism, and Vladimir Putin's undiminished ambitions to, you might say, make Russia great again. And so it's worth repeating over and over that Donald Trump actively tried to subvert the democratic will of the American people. Even normal presidents in their second term are unchained by never needing to run for political office again. What would Trump unchained mean for America and for the rest of us? How far would he be Putin's pal? And what does it mean for NATO? No, and I think that's very important. I mean, I've been in Europe a few times uh, since the war, uh, since Russia's, since Putin launched the invasion of Ukraine, trying to help a little bit with coordinate some things with our with the Europeans who want to be pro-Ukraine and the Americans, how we can sort of strengthen each other and so forth. And I was so struck at one meeting where a young German Green, who was excellent on Ukraine from my point of view, I can't say I would have thought 30 years ago that the people I would like best in Europe are the, would be German Greens, you know, but that's, that's, this is the world we live in, the Reagan yeah. Republicans and the German Greens, you know, and, and she said at the end, but you know, Mr. Crystal, look, I, I will work together on all of this, but, you know, we're going to fight hard here in Germany and in Europe, but uh, can you assure me that the U.S. will be there, will stay the course? And I said, you know, honestly, I can't. So Trump could win in 24. I think the international consequences of that really would be catastrophic in the world we're now living in, incidentally. And incidentally, it's already doing great damage. The fact that, look what's happening in Congress or the difficulty in getting uh, aid to Ukraine, look what's happening. Uh, our allies look at us and think, can we count on these people? And we've had these problems before, but typically the U and the U.S. was, of course, uh, irresponsibly staying away from things in Europe in the 30s and so forth. But at the key moments, the two parties have tended to come together in 1940-41 when the Republicans rejected isolationism and people like, you know, Wilkie was the nominee and then uh, Republican senators that stood with Roosevelt even with some reluctance. And, and then obviously in the Cold War years and many times when you would, you know, one can think of, again, there were plenty of fights and it wasn't as easy as it looks in retrospect, but at the end of the day, people did come together in the Balkans with Clinton and McCain and, and so forth. So for one of our two major parties at a two-party system to be so adverse to a responsible U.S. role, responsible American global leadership is, I think, very dangerous. I mean, I think that partly because I think it's so important that the peace we've tended to take for granted for the last 80 years or so, so much depends on that, I think. And and NATO being one instance, but obviously the equivalent problems, challenges in, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, Middle East, I don't even you know need to mention now. So yeah, it's very dangerous, I, I think. And, and Putin looks at it and Putin thinks, and here's where I think people are being, if I could put it this way, imaginative enough about how much damage is being done by the Trumpization of the Republican Party. Putin, if you're Putin, you look at the current situation, you think, you know what? I want Trump, not Biden, in November 2024. I'm not gonna, maybe he doesn't directly interfere the way he did in 2016, but doesn't he have every incentive to make the war in Gaza and, and the threats to Israel and the 
damage and destruction even worse than it is? Doesn't he have every every incentive to make Americans think Biden doesn't have control, so to speak, over the world we're living in? I think the degree to which you don't have to be a conspiratorialist and think Putin and Iran have sort of have arranged everything that's happening or ordered things to happen to think they have a lot of incentives to make the world more disruptive, more chaotic, things to seem more out of control over the next year. So the fact of Trump being the very likely Republican nominee itself is destabilizing around the world, which in turn, though, however, could make him more likely to win in November of 2024. Donald Trump has already secured his place in history. The only president to be impeached twice, the only one to face so many criminal charges, the only one to inspire a riot based on claims he made that the presidential election was stolen from him. But to his tens of millions of supporters, more than 70 million voters endorsed Trump in 2020, he's not a villain. He is the principal victim of the deep state he intends to dismantle. For a historical perspective, let's go back to Sarah Churchwell, author of Behold America on the long history of the far right in the United States and most recently, The Wrath to Come, which explores the roots of what we might call Trumpism. Sarah, how does Donald Trump fit into American history? Because there have been lots of people who've tried to break up politics as usual, but he does seem in some ways unique and in some ways part of a tradition. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's exactly the answer, right? Is that I think he's of a kind that we've seen before, but at a degree that we've never seen before. And he's achieved a degree of power that we've never uh, seen before. I think that the only way that we can address it is by recognizing those continuities that you were alluding to, by recognizing that he is not totally anomalous in American history and that he is not somebody that we can't make sense of. He's fully intelligible to anybody who hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid. He's actually quite a straightforward person. Um, he's very easy to understand. So I think that by recognizing that this, that he is, you know, he is a I'm not a lawyer. I can say things that I don't have to say alleged, right? I mean, the man is a mobster. He is straightforwardly a mobster. He is straightforwardly a con man. He is straightforwardly an opportunist. But the way in which his opportunism is making common cause with people who have strong political agendas, which he doesn't personally really have. And so his capture of the political right in America has enabled them to pursue their agenda and him to pursue his agenda is what we're looking at. But how is it he appeals to both the evangelical Christian right? He's not an evangelical. He doesn't seem to know which way to even hold a, hold a Bible, to be honest. Uh, and he appeals to big money people who are actually genuine big money people. Yeah. And I'm really glad you've put it that way, by the way, because I think that, that you have absolutely described what is happening. Because the other part of the discourse that some people accept is the idea that he, this is being driven by white working class resentment. It's not. That plays into it. But those are not the people who are swinging the outcomes here. The people who are swinging the outcomes are exactly the groups you just identified, the Christian right and the big money right. Um, so how does he do it? He does it by promising because he is an opportunist, because he has no convictions whatsoever except his own desire for power. And now his very real need to avoid legal consequences. That's what he's driven by. So because he has absolutely no convictions whatsoever, he will do whatever the people who will put him in power want him to do. 
and he's smart enough to not double cross those people. If they'll give him what he wants, he'll give them what they want. It's strictly transactional. He is a transactional person without exception, right? So with the Christian right, what happened was he promised them that he would push their agenda because he didn't care. So he was perfectly happy to take away reproductive rights from women because who cares about women? Because he is a misogynist through and through. So that doesn't matter to him as long as he has power. And then by doing that, what he discovered while he was in office was that there was a certain segment, at least, of the Christian right who were prepared to, and this is really hard for people who are not of this world to understand, but we really have to try to make sense of it to see what's happening here. There is a particular evangelical millenarian sort of worldview it's a kind of conspiracy theory version of Christianity, which says, you know, that that God has this huge plan. And so many of them recognize that Donald Trump himself is not a Christian. They recognize that he is not a true social conservative, but they think he's part of God's plan. They can see what he's doing, but he's achieving their agenda. And they also, part of their agenda is about the Middle East, and they think that he is achieving that agenda for them. And as that started to gain traction while he was in the White House, he started to get subsumed into a worldview that then that, that started to see him as the kind of tool of Jesus, that Jesus was there. Put, and some people will have seen the art that is circulating around the internet. So there are these artworks of Jesus putting hands on, you know, on Trump and, and his, you know, followers in the White House. And it is ludicrous for people who don't believe. I mean, you're laughing, I'm laughing. It is, it is for us you know, it seems absolutely preposterous. And yet, if you are of a worldview that says that this is all part of God's plan, it starts to fuse. And for Trump, given his absolutely overwhelming narcissism, put him next to Jesus, he is a happy man, right? So that's the Christian side of things. The big business side is really simple. He would just vote for what makes rich people richer. And they fully believe that he made the that he improved the economy. I meet these people. They tell me they are absolutely convinced that he was running a brilliant economy, that Biden has run the economy into the ground. The numbers don't support that. The American economy right now is booming. Trump was destroying the economy. I mean, the numbers show that. But they their ideology is that Republicans are good for big business and that tax cuts are good for big business. And so they simply believe it regardless of whether it's true or not. Well, um, my takeaway from that is he's not the Messiah. He's just a naughty boy. Um, <laughs> exactly. More than a naughty boy, but yes. Can we look at a couple of the, the cultural things about Donald Trump, if that is such an odd word? I mean, he said when a Korean film won uh, the Oscar for Best Movie, he said, why doesn't Hollywood make more movies like Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind is an extraordinarily racist <laughs> document, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, that does yeah. tell you something, doesn't it? Absolutely. And and people were outraged by that for a reason, right? That And of course, he said it to be outrageous. He always does. It. Uh, I would say a couple of things about him, though. You know, it, first of all, it marks his age. And he's an old man, right? For him to have a callback to a film from 1939 shows what his cultural reference points are. Black he is and a white dinosaur. film <laughs> in various <laughs> I mean, ways. I mean, I mean God with the Wind is, is technical or te- you know, technically, but, <laughs> but exactly, but exactly, but in every other sense, every black other and white. Sense. And um and so his nostalgia is for a, a world, you know, that is older than my parents, you know. So this uh, degree to which his sense of the world is a constant anachronism that he's trying to reimpose and the race-based 
structure of it is just part of his paleolithic attitudes generally because of course they're they're profoundly misogynistic as well profoundly patriarchal god with the wind is actually a pretty feminist story for him to be shouting out um when you think about it so at least there's so his attitudes are of a piece um with who he is and and i think that you know part of the the hope that i personally continue to feel for american politics which gets tested daily obviously and it's not a um it's not a blithe hope. It is a it is a clutching by your fingernails, <laughs> terrified hope um, that maybe we can get through this. But one of one of my reasons for thinking that there's hope is that this generation is dying out. He will not live forever. But the damage that he has done will last a very long time. The shameful raid and break-in of my home, Mar-a-Lago was a travesty of justice that made a mockery of America's laws, traditions, and principles before the entire world. The entire world was watching, and they're shocked. This egregious abuse of the law is going to produce a backlash, the likes of which nobody has ever seen One year out from an election, the big question, therefore, remains. What can prevent four more turbulent Trump years in the White House? Chaos in Washington and across the United States, and dismay among democratic governments across much of the world. Here's Bill Kristol again. It is worth going back to 2015-16 for a minute and and saying that it wasn't inevitable. It's sort of like world, a colleague of mine once compared the rise of Trump and then his presidency to World War One. It wasn't inevitable. A lot of somewhat adventitious events happen to make it possible. But once it happens, it has major consequences. And I do think in 2015-16, in the fact that he it looked like the leading candidates in, in the two parties were Hillary Clinton, the wife of a former president uh, who been in office for a long time and had run in 2008, and Jeb Bush, the brother and son of our two most recent Republican presidents. It just looked like the elites were just reproducing themselves in in the most kind of uh, self-serving way, that there was no fresh thinking or fresh approaches. The the hopes of President Obama, and I don't say this in a partisan way, but I think had been sort of disappointed. I mean, there's the notion that that, people thought in 2008, this is a new moment. This is the new, you know, he was a new figure, obviously, and a very different figure. And one thought, okay, maybe both parties will kind of move on to the 21st century. And instead, voters looked up and saw Bush and Clinton and thought, my God. And Trump was an effective demagogue. And uh, finally, not to dwell too much on 2015, but it is it is kind of important and interesting. I do think just events happen in the world. I'd say particularly the migration crisis in Europe, the, ter- the terrorism uh, in Paris, but also here, obviously, in San Bernardino. And Trump seemed, you know, it was terribly demagogic in the way he discussed those issues, but they helped him. I think Europeans don't appreciate how much Fox News showed films of the migrants in Europe. And Trump's appeal was very explicitly, this will happen here unless we don't let Muslims in, right? That was the Muslim ban. But then Brexit, you know, I think it's a lot of things happen at once, right? I think you had the same issue with Brexit. And anyway, so we ended up with Trump. Uh, He didn't uh, recede from the demagoguery as president and he got away with it. I mean, the the important thing is he has succeeded 
to a degree. I mean, he lost in 2020, thank God. But despite everything, the pandemic and uh, everything he did as president, trusting Putin more than our intelligence agencies. And then, oh, well, he doesn't have a chance after January 6th. His political future is done. And here he is, the leading candidate for the Republican nomination. So the fact that Trumpism hasn't failed has strengthened it a lot and has made all these Republicans who should know better decide, well, I guess this is the future and I guess we just go along with it somehow or other. Do you see any grounds for optimism in stopping Trump uh, and and rebuilding the Republican Party, which also, at least from the distance that we're sitting now, seems to be uh, at each other's throats, even if it's sometimes behind closed doors or mostly behind closed doors? I think the Republican Party is is a lost cause for now. I mean, I think it could be rebuilt in a way like the British Labour Party could pivot after a, did pivot, after a big defeat. But that's a post-2024 and probably even will take a few years after that, I think. One point people don't quite appreciate, I think, is, is how deep the Trumpism is now, how institutionally strong it is, actually. It's, we still tend to think of it, if you're, you know, my age, I suppose, as kind of a you know, fringe movement that by some fluke became, took over and still has you know, a lot of oomph out there in the country. But, but now there's a big institutional infrastructure, uh, obviously major media organs, a lot of money, a lot of people who've made their, begin to make their careers, you know, as young Trumpists, you know, and so forth in the Senate and the House as governors. And again, so far, they haven't really paid a price for that. A few have, but many of them have been successful. One is Speaker of the House. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Republican Party is not going to be fixed in the very near future. Uh, Trump being defeated in 2024, really, however, it would be huge. And, and could he be defeated for the nomination? Um, I, I think it's not as impossible as some people think. I, you just don't know. Do people look up one last time and have they put up with so much? Do they finally say, geez, maybe this is just a bridge too far and the, the court cases and the world we're living in. And maybe there is a bit of a default to Nikki Haley at the very end. I mean, the good news would be if you want to, I, mean, I think this is a long, very long shot, but the good news is there is some resistance to Trump. I mean, he is at 55%, which is very depressing, but that means 45% of the Republican electorate kind of prefer, would prefer someone else. What would stop him then? I mean, could we go through a couple of possibilities? The court cases. Uh, I mean, we, we have got, without going into the details of any of them, uh, would, is it possible that a conviction would stop him? Possible. I mean, these are very uncharted waters. And January 6th didn't stop him. You've got to wonder if, you know, uh, even a conviction in one of these cases would. But a, a trial, a court trial is different and people will watch it. And maybe they'll be, if he's convicted, I mean, of course, he could go to trial and the evidence could be overwhelming and you could get a, an effect during nullification where one or two Trump supporters say no, right? And then what does it look, what does the world look like if Trump's acquitted or, or there's a hung jury more likely in one of these trials? So I think the trials is one thing, obviously. Uh, he could be defeated for the Republican nomination. Could that 45 go up to 55? Could they coalesce behind Haley? Those are both tough arguments to make. It's much more likely that even if it comes down to a Trump-Haley race, Trump wins in most states. 60, 40, 65, 35. But at least you get a real race. Maybe the, the the world crisis does focus people's attention, you know? Do you really want someone like Trump with his, you know, ability to be courted by dictators, not just ability to be courted, but his seeming preference for the Putins and, and uh, even the Xi's of the world? Do we really want that? Do we really want NATO to break apart after everything here with Ukraine? I mean, so I, I don't think it's out of the question, but I think more likely Trump's the nominee, but then... Hopefully, we get the kind of mobilization of the Democrats, but also of never-Trump Republicans or ex-Republicans in 2024. 
hopefully a bigger victory perhaps over Trump than 2020 even. And then I think two losses in a row, that, that could change the dynamics. Every great nation, going back even before Roman times or ancient Greece, has its founding myths. The United States has two, and with Donald Trump, they're in collision. The first, and the one we think about around the world, is of the founding fathers from the 1770s, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin and James Madison. They hoped the American Constitution would be, as Ronald Reagan put it, a shining city on a hill. But there is another founding myth a century earlier, the Pilgrim Fathers. They thought of themselves as a chosen people, awaiting the second coming of Christ and purifying the evil in America by, among other things, burning witches. The idea that Donald Trump is God's chosen vessel, destroying the demons of the deep state, may seem ridiculous to most listeners. The question is whether by November 2024, such a clearly flawed man will seem equally ridiculous to American voters. One year to save American democracy. This is not a drill. I'm Gavin Essler. Goodbye. This is Not A Drill was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott and social media by Jess Harvey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production. <laughs>